Hello and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast. Episode 17, Interlude the Second, Part 2. Whilst we take our leave of the young Jacobite prince in Rome, let's return to Britain in the aftermath of the 15 Rising and see what happened, but starting with a brief diversion to the Caribbean. This is a topic that could have gone in with the episodes on the 1715 Rising, but fits well here as a standalone part of Jacobite scheming in the wider British colonies. Lord Archibald Hamilton, the Governor of Jamaica, had, as part of the War of Spanish Succession, recruited privateers to raid Spanish ships. To quickly clarify, a privateer is a captain of a ship, normally commissioned by a letter of mark from the state, giving them permission to attack and rob ships of hostile nations. Privateers would then pay a commission to the Crown and its representatives from the treasure taken. Lord Hamilton commissioned Henry Jennings, Charles Vane and Benjamin Hornigold. These men later abandoned the legal cover of privateering and indulged in full-on piracy, raiding ships at will. There's some evidence via family connections and motives that Lord Hamilton, the Governor of Jamaica, may have been a closet Jacobite sympathiser and potentially have tried to rally the group as a Jacobite naval force to fight off the Royal Navy and seize the Caribbean for King James. Lord Hamilton's brother George was a major general of the Earl of Mar, and many of his rivals accused Archibald Hamilton of raising an army to seize control. Now, there's nothing concrete, and like in any civil war, just because family were Jacobites doesn't guarantee Archibald was. After all, the Murrays fought on different sides. But it didn't look good and neither did the personal suspected receipt of roughly £400 of silver from each of the privateering raids. Following this debacle, the privateers rather predictably decided that the poorly paid and abusive life of the Navy at the time was better off renouncing that and going back to the life of piracy. Sailing to the Bahamas and to New Providence Island, in the area around the current Bahamanian capital of Nassau, the group proclaimed a Republic of Pirates which heralded the Golden Age of Piracy. These pirates, joined by Calico Jack Rackham, Steed Bonnet, and Edward Teach, or Thatch, better known as Blackbeard, wrought havoc on the shipping of Britain, France, and Spain, whenever it took their fancy. There are reports that many of the pirates drank toasts to King James, or had certain Jacobite sympathies from the names of their ships, namely Bonnet's Royal James, another pirate naming theirs Ormond after the Jacobite loyalist Lord, and lest we forget, the most famous pirate ship of all, Blackbeard's Queen Anne's Revenge. It's worth pointing out that there's nothing concrete to this, but the evidence points to a lot of sympathy for the Jacobites amongst pirates, if only in its self-interest to gain a pardon for nefarious deeds, or to rationalise criminal endeavours as insurrectionary actions against the Hanoverian crown, as well as a convenient way for the Hanoverians to smear any potential opponents. The pirate threat continued until the appointment of Woods Rogers, the mariner and slave trader, to governorship of the Bahamas. After evading a fire ship sailed at him by Charles Vane, Rogers gained control of Nassau, reinforced the island's defences, hired Benjamin Hornigold as a pirate hunter, then tracking his former allies, and also offering a royal pardon for piracy. Many pirates took it, and many who refused, or who didn't reneged, were ruthlessly hunted down, securing the area for the British and beginning the end of the golden age of piracy. Thank you all for coming with me on this Caribbean detour and indulging my other interest in pirates. Now for the main body of the show, the continuation of our look at the interludes between Risings. Following victory in the 1715 Rising, the Hanoverian Crown and Whig government 
seriously shaken by the rising, stomped on dissent. After transporting rebels to the colonies or executing them, the government passed the Septennial Act in 1716. The term of a parliament was elongated from three years to seven years. This was done under the justification of saving the country money on setting up elections. Tories accused the Whig government of grabbing power and going so far as to try and propose a peerage bill in 1719 that would limit peerages and control the Lords via government ministers. All of that was defeated, but it was due to another rift that could prove more damaging. At this point in their relationship, King George and his son George August, the Prince of Wales, were barely on speaking terms. The latest in their long-brewing resentments was from the birth of Prince George William in 1717. The King, exercising what he believed to be royal prerogative, appointed the Lord Chancellor, the Duke of Newcastle, to be a sponsor at the Prince's baptism. The Prince of Wales, who despised the Lord Chancellor, walked straight up to Newcastle and said, You are a rascal. I shall find you out. Unfortunately for all involved, Newcastle heard, You are a rascal. I shall fight you. Whilst the Prince shook his fist at the Duke. Now, one of the key rules of the UK, even in the 1700s, was never, ever challenge someone from Newcastle to a fight. A joke that would work a lot better if the Duke wasn't actually from London. Nonetheless, there was a very nearly a duel between the Prince of Wales and the Lord Chancellor at a baptism. King George swiftly banned the Prince and his wife from St James's Palace and kept his grandchildren away from their parents. Prince George and his wife Caroline of Ansbach were distraught and they soon turned Leicester House in London into the HQ for the resistance and opposition to their father. Now this feud had built for some time. Whilst the public had rioted when George was crowned king, the prince was nowhere near as disliked as his father. He came to England and, albeit with a very thick German accent, proceeded to speak in English to his people, a language his father did not speak. When King George went to Hanover, Prince George toured the country to the acclaim of his subjects. The acrimony developed into a schism, not just in the royal family, but in the Whig party too. There was a faction in the Whig party clinging to the prince in what Professor Shecky refers to in his book as the reversionary interest, where the heir has his own independent political framework and factions will attach to that so that they become part of the ministry once the heir apparent manages to get in charge. The Tory party had tried to do this but didn't have an in because a they were still having major hang-ups over the Germanness of the new royal family and b the whole premise of riding on the coattails of the heir of the throne is contingent on the current monarch dying. And frankly, there was no indication the king was going to do that in the immediate future. But these legal and constitutional routes to power weren't always open, and the loyalty to the Jacobites within the Tory party was often kept to the margins of political power. And so English Jacobites continued to plot and scheme for the restoration of the Stuarts. All they needed was a catalyst. That catalyst came in 1720, and a scandal known to history as the South Sea Bubble. This scandal was caused by the South Sea Company, which was established by the government in 1711 to create income to alleviate government debt. This would be achieved by converting the debt to shares in the company, which used government-issued monopoly on South American trade in the model of the East India and Royal African companies. In 1713, the company won a contract with the Spanish government to transport African slaves to the South American colonies. 
The problem then arose that the War of the Spanish Succession pretty much halted trade between Spanish territories and British subcontractors. But in truth, that side of the business had never been profitable for the company. What really brought in funds was speculation in the London stock market. There was talk of business ventures opening up in a new world which would bring newfound riches to investors, from small traders all the way up to landed gentry. Anyone who wanted to get a piece of the action jumped in as prices skyrocketed to £1,000 a share at the peak. This boom would inevitably have to end, however, and the people who could see the inside information of this started to sell their stocks, including several MPs who'd been bribed with free shares, as well as the King and the Prince of Wales. These men and the others in the know made an awful lot of money out of this. The others who'd invested and prayed for riches lost a lot of money. One notable who lost money was Sir Isaac Newton, who is reported to have lost anywhere up to the value of £20,000 in South Sea stocks. Whilst the company ledgers fled to Europe in the hands of the company cashier, meaning there was no legal evidence of impropriety, so nobody was going to face charges for corruption, the people and several legislatures were livid and were baying for blood. The backlash was extremely ready to consume everybody in the establishment if it wasn't for someone who, until this point, had been a junior minister. Robert Walpole took control of the investigation held by Parliament and in a masterful act of political chicanery, managed to keep the King, the Prince of Wales and many of his colleagues out of the fire, while single-handedly throwing all 33 of the company's directors under the bus and stripping assets from the company to be divided between stockholder victims, the East India Company and the Bank of England. Walpole was lauded by politicians of the day for keeping most of them safe, on the Whig side at least. But to everyone else, it was clear Walpole was, in the words of the time, a screenmaster, helping to conduct a cover-up. This cemented Walpole in the eyes of some as the main mover and shaker of establishment British politics at the time. But for the Jacobites, this provided a window of opportunity. The House of Hanover was arguably in as precarious and unpopular state as when George I was first crowned. King James issued a declaration in October 1720 condemning the actions and stating that he, the true King of Britain, would have never violated the trust of his people in this way. Initially, they figured they'd approach the Earl of Sunderland, who was First Lord of the Treasury, to see if he'd try and redeem himself from the South Sea scandal by removing Hanover from the Crown, but nothing really came of that. One person who was convinced the time had come, however, was Dr Francis Atterbury, the Archbishop of Rochester. Atterbury was a man who studied, wrote and corresponded with poet Alexander Pope and writer Jonathan Swift, to give you a sort of mark of the man we're dealing with. Atterbury believed in the primacy of the Anglican Church running the state, and whilst he was no friend of Catholicism, his reasoning supported the Jacobite claim to the throne as King James had pledged not to supplant the Church of England as the state faith, and he believed that many of the reforms that sidelined the bishops passed in 1689 under William and Mary would be reversed. Atterbury was a major church figure, even carrying George I's crown at his coronation. Following the South Sea scandal, however, Atterbury sent a letter to James pleading with him for the good of his nation, currently at the mercy of greedy corrupt politicians and a foreign figurehead king. With the aid of Lords North and Grey and a barrister by the name of Christopher Layer, a plan began to hatch involved bringing back Ormond and Mar and an invasion force mounted by the Irish emigres who fought for France. 
Atterbury aided the plot with a massive propaganda drive, publishing pamphlets attacking George's involvement in the South Sea scandal and a furiously mudslinging pamphlet casting aspersions on the legitimate parentage of the Prince of Wales. The plotters scheduled their coup for the 1722 general election between March and May. Lord North plotted to seize the Tower of London, the Mint and the Bank of England. Barricades would be set up and arms caches distributed. King James would return with an invasion force to seize the capital and the Hanoverian usurpers to claim his throne back for the House of Stuart. But the wheels fell off the plot when the funding to get arms fell through. Atterbury was apoplectic, feeling that the group had shown their hand. They were planning to attack again, but once again, treachery came from within to ruin the chances of the cause once again. This time there was a double prong of betrayal. French officials warned the British but they were only confirming letters that had been sent by the Earl of Mar. Mar's deception of his king in exile had long been in place as he was desperate to return to his homeland. Eager to please the government in London, he complied with their requests to send the leaders of the plot some very incriminating letters, thereby dropping them all in it. The government then struck, seizing Leia, North, Atterbury and Orrery, as well as Atterbury's assistant George Kelly, who destroyed his correspondence as agents raided his house. They also arrested Philip Naho, who'd been hired as a secretary to Kelly. Naho broke under interrogation when captured, telling the names of the Jacobite ringleaders, before throwing himself in the Thames to his death. Walpole called in the army to reinforce the city, increased the standing troops to 18,000, and suspended the legal right of habeas corpus, the legal procedure where the state has to show lawful reason for detention of a person. Once all rounded up, the government went hell to leather to try and get convictions, but the evidence was suspicious in some places, circumstantial in others, and downright fraudulent in the remainder. Lords North and Grey weren't convicted but allowed to slip into exile. Atterbury was held but eventually expelled. The sole casualty of this was Christopher Layer, the barrister who'd done the bulk of the planning, which was presented to the court by the mistress of the brothel the paperwork was found in. Walpole used his position to delay Leia's execution in the hope he would denounce the plotters, but Leia stayed loyal as he mounted the scaffold to his death. The Atterbury plot fizzled out, achieving nothing more than to massively enhance the standing of Robert Walpole as a man who could get things done for King George and the government. In reality, the plot had far more going for it in planning than performance. There was no funding and next to no munitions to arm an insurrection. Foreign assistance would have been as vital as the previous campaigns, but again, Luck was not on the side of the Jacobites, as both France and Spain were at peace with Britain at the time and either told Britain or made actions to move the large Irish exile armies inland to prevent them from attempting to launch an invasion in support of the plot. This failure only strengthened the hand of the Whig government and King George, who exploited it to the hilt, consolidating power and decimating Jacobite plotters. This would be the last serious attempt on power we're going to see for a while, so for now, we're going to look at Scotland and Ireland to see how the other two nations are faring. Ireland, as we just mentioned, had a squad of men who would go to the European powers for training and munitions. Given that they had no money or arms of their own at home, this would be the best way for them to learn. The wild geese, as they became known, would fight for France and Spain to greater claim. Ireland had several underground networks to recruit these men abroad, and often the government in London would play cat and mouse with these networks, trying to stop men joining the foreign powers. There was a contingent of Irish plotters who aimed to rise up and support Atterbury. As many other of the actions, it disintegrated and melted away when the plot itself collapsed. 
The predominantly Catholic community in Ireland remained in a state of oppression, but they held fast to the belief the Stuarts may be restored and that the punitive anti-Catholic measures will be repealed. This would sadly not occur for a long time yet, so they'd have to make themselves content networking with the European forces to obtain a Stuart restoration. We turn next to Scotland, obviously the nation that suffered most since 1715. Now despite the 1719 rising taking place entirely in Scotland, there wasn't any major Scottish involvement in the Atterbury plot, which brought some Scottish Jacobites a little leniency and some political cover. Life in Scotland was still harsh, and there were some measures London took that raised the ire of Scotland, namely the malt tax and the attempts to impose customs rules against smugglers, though that was some discrimination at English officers being imposed on Scotland rather than support for actual smuggling. But it did give rise to the Porteous Riots of 1736, where an officer was lynched after six protesters were shot dead after throwing rocks. Porteous was due to be sentenced for murder, but London issued a reprieve, resulting in mob justice. The heavy-handed and somewhat ignorant responses from London would become somewhat of a theme, one that already helped stoke alienation and add to the already heavy anti-union sentiment in Scotland. Scotland's involvement in the Risings meant that the government decided to add extra defensive measures. Fortifications were bulked out with the help of General George Wade, we encountered Wade previously in the destruction of the Gillenborg plot with Sweden. Since then, he'd commanded an expedition in Vigo during the struggle against Spain, before returning to England and becoming an MP for Bath. Here he stayed until 1724, when a report arrived in London from another returning character, the Lord Lovett, Simon Fraser. Since assisting King George's forces in seizing Inverness, Simon Fraser's star had risen. His Mackenzie and Murray adversaries were sidelined due to their support of the Jacobite cause. The clan Fraser and its ancestral castle of Dooney were back in his hands, and he was in charge. But he kept his foot in the Jacobite camp, later receiving a pardon from James in Rome and a commission as a Jacobite Major General, which he kept hidden, you know, just in case. Appointed Governor of Inverness, he wrote to the King in London, expressing his great concern that London was kept poorly informed on matters in the Highlands, that it was a lawless society, with soldiers poorly equipped to take on bandits in an area that they were at severe disadvantage due to the fact they weren't able to speak Gaelic. Fraser advised that the King should resurrect the independent Highland companies raised from the clans to fight for George, which had been since disbanded. Fraser argued that men loyal to the regime needed to be employed to protect the integrity and security of the nation. Modern historians have argued that Simon Fraser's report was more an attempt at self-promotion, a chance to command a Highland garrison, further his own career, and have a state-backed militia. The Whigs in London had wanted a second opinion, and here's where we welcome General George Wade back into the story. Wade was invited up to Scotland, even dining at Castle Dooney with Fraser. Wade felt Fraser had a point on the independent Highland companies, which was what Fraser had wanted to expand his power and influence problem for the Highlanders was that Wade went even further. He proposed that not only should two new forts be built, but that started in his mind the early proposals to improve Highland infrastructure. Namely, the construction of roads to allow British troops to move quickly to improve communication and response times to any issues. The government enthusiastically agreed and funded his construction projects. Forts William, George and Augustus were built or renovated and the roads linking them were constructed. This took thousands of pounds and the best part of a decade, but by the late 1730s, Wade had his roads and forts, 
the government rewarded him by making him governor of Forts William, George and Augustus. Simon Fraser and even pro-union men like the Lord Advocate Duncan Forbes were against this, seeing it as union overreaching rather than letting the Highlanders settle Highland affairs themselves than getting London involved. But the troops did help quell the initial concerns of lawlessness addressed by Lovett. Sadly for the king, he wouldn't live long enough to see all this done. King George I was taken ill on one of his overseas trips to Hanover, and he passed away in Europe in June 1727 from a stroke whilst on the road. He died leaving a son who wasn't friendly to him, and a British public who felt he was too German for their liking. But at the time, he was the strongest defence against the Jacobites and the Catholic monarchies of Europe. And even though his grasp on the English language may not have been great, he was perfectly capable of communicating with his ministers in French, and was generally quite a genial monarch. But his scandalous behaviour with his wife, his restrained public manner, and his perceived Germanness and lack of English, led to the Hanoverian caricature we see in a lot of portrayals today. His reign was disputed, and suffered as high profile a riot and rebellion since the wars of 1689. George August of Hanover and his wife Caroline of Brandenburg-Ansbach were crowned as King and Queen of Great Britain and Ireland on October 22, 1727. The classical composer Handel wrote four new songs for the coronation, including Zadok the Priest, which for an interesting bit of pub trivia is the song that UEFA used as the basis for the theme song to the Champions League tournament. George II was in his 40s when he took the throne and the electorship of Hanover, despite a rather ugly incident involving George I's will apparently giving Hanover to his future descendants and not his son. An irritable man who preferred Hanover to England, he was initially going to sack Sir Robert Walpole, but was persuaded by his wife Caroline to keep him on. During all of this, despite a brief unsuccessful visit to Lorraine to stage a possible return to Britain following the death of the king, James Francis Edward Stuart had kept his head down, and despite some feelers during the Atterbury plot, had settled into life in Rome. His son Charles was attended to by English servants. Even in his early days, he was remarked to by many who met him to have an easy-going natural charm about him. Speaking Italian, French, and a heavily accented English by the age of six, though historians are divided whether that accent was more Italian or Irish, the young Charles was a precocious child, who was settling well into his role as the heir to the Jacobite throne. Charles wasn't alone for long though, as on March the 5th, 1725, Maria Clementina Sobieski gave birth to a second son, whom Pope Benedict XIII baptised as Henry, Benedict, Thomas, Edward, Maria, Clement, Francis, Xavier, Stuart. Given the title of Duke of York from pretty much birth, the whole College of Cardinals from the Roman Catholic Church came to greet yet another heir to the Jacobite throne. Next time, we'll look at the early reign of George II and the lives of Charles Edward and Henry Benedict, the Stuart Princes, when we take notice of the new generation of Jacobites and the future of the campaign to restore the Stuart monarchy.